Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth, where we explore how studies here are changing our world today and in the future. I'm John Worsey, a writer at the University of Portsmouth, and I'd like to wish you a happy new year. For many of us, this is the time of New Year's resolutions, whether that's cutting out chocolate, carbs or coffee. But how much of our cravings and indeed our addictions come down to the smell? Dr. Lorenzo Stafford is Associate Professor in Psychobiological Psychology here at the university. If you think about growing up in schools, there's different sort of school smells and it's quite a kind of jokey type thing really. So I think maybe for that reason, people don't take it so seriously. But I think it's fascinating. We'll be exploring how our noses tell us more about the world than we often give them credit for, how aromas can be key to addressing addictions and how COVID-19 taught millions of people to appreciate their sense of smell more. It's a dangerous opening gambit to talk about young children and smells, but Lorenzo fortunately has nothing but positive and polite stories to tell. Growing up in the 1970s in London and my mother was Italian and so exposed to a wide variety of different sort of smells and foods and what have you in the household. And I think one of my earliest memories was like coffee, like freshly brewed coffee, one of those old fashioned Bialetti kind of coffee stoves in our small kitchen. And just the aroma kind of filling the air, that rich sort of smell and got many kind of fond memories associated to that time. That's one of my earliest memories, but obviously lots of food type ones as well. My mother was a good cook. So I think it must have planted a seed, I think, in my mind. And then many years later, when I had the opportunity to think more about it, then I think that must have resurrected itself, if you like. Which partly explains why Lorenzo has made the study of aromas into a career. And the smell of coffee is a good starting point, because even if we don't like the taste of coffee, nearly all of us love the scent. Although in the 1970s, Freshly ground coffee was more of a rarity in the UK. You had to go to a special coffee shop. There were not so many of them around where you'd sit in there as a child whilst the person would actually put beans from all these massive kind of array of different beans from around the world into a special machine. And minutes later, the coffee would be ground and a little packet for you to take home. And it was just that beautiful smell there. It's just some very vivid memories for me, really. So is there something about odours that particularly hooks us into memories of our early years? Yeah, it associates that memory in the good times, I think, as well. We know from odours and memory, they play a very powerful role in memories. And when we're reintroduced to a sort of smell, even many years later, we like a triggered response and we can have a very kind of vivid sort of picture of when we first experienced that particular odour. So let's shift this episode of Life Solved to the real-life coffee shop around the corner from one of the university buildings. Doubtless the sounds are familiar, but if you were here, the fragrance of the coffee beans would be filling your olfactory senses. Unfortunately, the Scratch and Sniff podcast isn't here yet, so you're just going to have to trust us that it smells wonderful. After his early memories of the aroma, years later, Lorenzo brought coffee to his studies. 
when I was doing my PhD many years ago at Sussex, that was to do with uh, studying caffeine rather than just sort of odours and things like that. And we were interested in why people choose to consume caffeinated beverages. Does it actually enhance their sort of like cognition and alertness? And then latterly, I got taking a slightly different sort of like point and I looked at the influence of odours as well in that kind of process. That didn't really show anything that clear at that time. But then a few years later, when I arrived at Portsmouth, I wanted to look at this a bit further. And so we've done a, a variety of like studies in terms of odours. And so we've, we've shown that because it's a mildly addictive drug than caffeine and people who consume coffee, obviously, there's more caffeine in coffee than tea, for instance. And we showed that uh, individuals that are habitual consumers of coffee, they can detect the odour of coffee at much lower concentrations compared to people that are not coffee consumers. And whereas in a kind of neutral odour, there's no difference. So it did seem to be you know, specific to the odour of coffee. And this is where Lorenzo's work can lead us beyond a flat white at Starbucks into something that can be used for social good. It kind of leads into some of the research in terms of addiction for other types of drugs and the importance of the sensory aspect. We might think of alcohol, we might think of other kinds of uh, drugs that we ingest as well. And interestingly, when I was collecting data for that former study, speaking to somebody there who worked with people who were recovering alcoholics, told me a story which was, I found very, very interesting. I'd, I tried to use it in one of my articles, but it did quite fit in. They were working with recovering alcoholics in a kind of residential setting, and they'd ordered some sort of Christmas puddings, which uh, normally have alcohol in them, but they made a point of requesting the non-alcohol versions, these Christmas puddings. And they, when they arrived, they put them in the oven. Puddings were cooking away nicely. And a lot of the recovering addicts were getting very agitated whilst this uh, food was cooking. And then when the people who were working at the actual place, they checked the actual packet, they were the alcoholic version. So presumably, we're not, we can't be certain, of course, but presumably they were smelling something in the alcohol that cooking there with the Christmas pudding, and that's what was setting them on edge. Now, obviously, one could say, well, it might not necessarily be that. It might just be the general association of like Christmas puddings, but it, it's interesting nonetheless in terms of that anecdotal evidence. So perhaps it's surprising that studying smells is a relatively rare pursuit. We've noticed in the olfactory field that it's a very small field, you know, for instance, in, in this country, in terms of the psychology and the biological kind of link, those two nexus, there are not many people doing that kind of research. And I think in the addiction field, that typifies that as well. So, for instance, a lot of research has been done on the visual side of it, which is undoubtedly important because one of the theories of addiction is you get conditioned to actually have a response to drug cues, such as the packet of cigarettes or the logo of cigarettes if you're a smoker. It might be a beer bottle or brand if you're into alcohol. And so just the sight of those things alone can trigger craving somebody who's addicted to it. So vision undoubtedly plays a sort of part in it as well. But it's only more recently we're looking at other kind of sensory cues as well to sort of see the importance they may play. The sense of smell is a little unique compared to the other senses. Try recreating a whiff of something in your mind, and you'll see what I mean. See? Not as easy as you'd think. That's something we find incredibly difficult as humans, whereas you think of other modalities, other senses, that is, such as like vision or hearing. We can almost recreate that sound, say, of a famous Beatles song in our mind, 
sort of famous picture van gogh sunflowers or something like that we can do that quite well but for an odor it's extremely difficult even if you expand that to the taste say i know fresh ripe strawberry i do this like in class test every year with my students and hardly anyone finds that as vivid and powerful as vision or sort of sound memories so it is incredibly difficult but that's the kind of paradox in a way because when we're reintroduced to an odor and it's actually present then it can trigger these very profound responses that are far more powerful than these other senses which is which is interesting perhaps for many of us it's the fact that we don't have a language for smells we'll explore that in just a moment hello i'm professor joy watts from the university of portsmouth's faculty of science and health this episode of life solved is a great starting point for a journey into our diverse life-changing research we explore everything from the evolution of life to the causes of environmental crises. And we often work in partnership with major organizations to enable innovation in sectors ranging from healthcare to elite sports. If this podcast has you feeling inspired, you can find out how to support our research, collaborate or study with us at port.ac.uk forward slash lifesolved. Putting this episode together, it became clear how few words come to mind when thinking of ways to describe smell. Dashing to the thesaurus brought us aroma, bouquet, scent, stink and whiff, but it still feels that they don't easily come to mind compared to other senses. And that's the problem for most of us. The language is limited outside of professional wine tasters. I think for people who may be sommeliers into their wines or tea tasters or whatever, they may well have, and they do have, or perfumers have their own language that they use to describe certain kinds of smells in terms of notes or what have you. But for the everyday person, there just isn't the language there for kind of smells to almost put a handle on the different kind of qualities of odors there's one of the theories that we we can't abstract odors whereas we can for sounds and vision as well so that means to say we can't compartmentalize an odor in our mind we can't recreate that in your mind so easily we can't move around that mental space with an odor so easily so probably that's why we don't have these kind of descriptors and even when we have a word to describe what we're sniffing it can actually be wrong People often describe that's a lovely sweet smell that somebody might detect in their environment, but there are no olfactory receptors for sweetness. So what they're really describing is the, is the taste of that food in their mouth then. So they're kind of misattributing it to smell when it's really to do with flavour. So anything in outside our mouth is to do with flavour. Anything outside the mouth is something different then. So, and taste, we like to kind of separate that into the sense of gustation in terms of sweet, sour, you know, bitter, umami, what have you. And there's proof of that connection between taste and smell, even with newborn babies who don't yet have the language to communicate their reactions in words. They've done some research in presenting them with different kinds of light smells and to see how their facial responses react, because obviously they don't have language at such a young age. And so they've shown them sort of, or presented sort of odours which are really quite unpleasant, like smelly feet or whatever, and looked at their facial responses and compared that to things like formula milk and vanilla, which is really, really interesting because... Whilst the facial responses for these unpleasant odours seem to be more generally more unpleasant than what we might sort of think of as like a prototypical disgust response, but that's by no means for all babies, but that's generally the trend is there. 
Whereas for the odor of vanilla, for instance, is much more mixed. And so that sort of like shows quite clearly that that's a learned response because as adults, we can't get enough of the smell of vanilla. We absolutely love it. So that seems to show the fact that we learn to respond to the odor of vanilla because of many pairings of the sweet taste of, say, chocolate or ice cream in our mouth. And we've associated it to the odor of vanilla so that when we just smell the odor of vanilla in the same way as the alcoholics, that triggers craving for the chocolate or whatever. And so it has that. That response. Meanwhile, for those of us who've already developed verbal skills, could it be that the reason we don't have the words for aromas is because we tend not to talk about them? I think so, quite possibly. You know, it could be cultural, I think, as well, that it's often sort of thought of as reminders of our animal past, our sense of smell. And if you think about growing up in schools, there's different sort of school smells, and it's quite a kind of jokey type thing, really. So I think maybe for that reason, people don't take it so seriously. But I think it's fascinating. I remember speaking to uh, school teachers over the years, and they seem to think that some of the kids at school can actually identify different children by the smell of their coats in their little cloakroom, which I found fascinating. But I could quite believe that might be the case as well. So it's, it's an interesting area then. The food industry uses smell to help sell its wares. The perfume industry has been going for thousands of years thanks to its floral aromas. But there's a new product on the market that takes advantage of our olfactory senses, and in some cases, it's causing concern. Vaping removes the unpleasant smell of tobacco smoke alongside a number of the health risks and replaces it with a more attractive scent to the first-time user. Lorenzo thinks it's a complicated conversation. It is a difficult area, that one, and I think the UK has sort of taken a different view to other countries, and you can see why we may have done that in terms of people who are existing tobacco smokers you want them to come off tobacco of course everybody gets that and so maybe using vapes might be one way they can do that but one of the concerns is you're in so doing you're attracting people that never smoked before because it's looked as a cool thing to do and you know you have this instrument in your hand that's emitting large plumes of smoke which smell nice and if you're using like sweet sort of flavours, again, misusing the word there in terms of smell, but that might attract sort of younger users, which is a, definitely a cause for concern. A few years ago, very few of us could have imagined a world without being able to smell things. And then came COVID. So I've been to a conference recently that was staged by Fifth Sense, a charity that helped people who've lost a sense of smell and taste. And, and even they admit themselves that the main person in charge there of Fifth Sense, that COVID in a cruel way has been like a great ambassador for the charity and for raising the awareness of people who are living without smell and taste. Because they reckon about 5% of any population are functionally anosmic. They can't smell, that means. And that's been exacerbated by COVID. And that's really shone a light on, you know, difficulties living without this sense of smell it doesn't just come down to like loss of sense of flavor for food obviously there are risks in terms of not being able to detect gas and smoke fire hazards uh, food that's unsafe to eat and there's lots of other things as well such as a social connection people kind of lose that kind of bond between other people particularly maybe if they have children and sort of like used to actually smelling their children and the closer bond that people have so they, they lose all of that Aside from COVID, there are other reasons we should investigate further if we lose our sense of smell. If individuals lose their sense of smell suddenly, that can be an early sort of warning for things like Parkinson's disease or maybe other types of neurological disease. So there are serious parts of, of it as well. 
I think it's very important sense and, and, and it shouldn't be underrated and just generally in kind of interaction with people it does play an important part and I guess there's things like the cosmetics industry that play on those aspects as well but it's, it's one of those areas of research that even the basic biology isn't sort of pinned down completely yet and that's what makes it an exciting field for researchers to work in even in terms of basic discrimination of different types of odors how is it actually done so we know parts about how the olfactory system sort of processes odors up until the higher parts of the brain but there is where the mysteries only starts really so that that's what makes it interesting from a researcher's point of view and these interactions with other areas of behavior as well both in the academic and the day-to-day -day world, a sense of smell is often underrated. Whether it helps bonding with our children, enhancing our taste or influencing our addictions, it makes sense to take it more seriously. So whether we're looking at light-hearted New Year's resolutions or more serious long-term addictions, the solutions may well be right under our nose. Thanks for listening to this episode of Life Solved. You are very welcome to be part of the discussion. Email us at lifesolved at port.ac.uk. That's lifesolved, one word, at port.ac.uk. Tell us what you think and make suggestions for future episodes of Life Solved. And we'd love it if you clicked follow on your podcast app so you never miss an edition. We'd really appreciate it if you left a rating or review as well. It helps us get these conversations into more ears around the globe. If you've been inspired by this episode and want to support our work, including the research you've heard about in the Faculty of Science and Health, then head to port.ac.uk slash lifesolved to find out how. You can also find out how to work or study with us. In the next episode released in a couple of weeks, we continue the New Year theme. And as the Christmas bills start arriving on the doormat, we ask, when will the cost of living crisis end? Bye for now. Bye.